On this edition of Magic Pod Squad, we catch up with Orlando Magic CEO Alex Martins. Alex is responsible for the day-to-day business operations of the Orlando Magic, and we get to dive into his basketball journey, going all the way back to when he attended Villanova and got to watch that 1985 championship run, ultimately ending his first professional job in the Philadelphia 76ers organization, and then following Pat Williams down to the Orlando Magic to start his career here in City Beautiful. His professional career would take him outside of Orlando and outside of the NBA as he would travel around before returning to Orlando in 2005 to return to this organization. A terrific inside look into the basketball career and journey of Orlando Magic CEO Alex Martins. This is Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic. This is Evan Fournier. This is Jonathan Isaac. This is Mo Bamba. Check out what's new with the Orlando Magic Pod Squad. The host of characters give you a behind-the-scenes look at Magic basketball. The Magic Pod Squad has you covered. Subscribe and rate on iTunes and the Google Play Store today. Alex, we're really looking forward to catching up with you here. This is long overdue to have you as a guest on Pod Squad, and I, and I think the one thing all of us are wondering is, as our bosses, how well does this have to go for all of us to, to stay employed as members of the Orlando? Well, I, I think it has to go fairly well. You know, first and foremost, obviously at this point in the season, I'm a little surprised you've exhausted all of your guests for the pod squad <laughs> that you have to, you know, have me on. Uh, yeah, there's a long way to we go. We have a long, long, long way to go. go so it. who's most likely not to be employed when this is over of the four of us? It's got to be me. Well, maybe the vice president of common sense. You know? <laughs> well, common sense would tell you that's not going to happen. <laughs> that I'm well, common be sense is here. not always. His microphone isn't even plugged in. About to find out here, Alex. But well, again, first of all, I, I'm always curious with our guests. Are you a podcast fan? I know you're probably not a fan of this one, but podcasts in general. Do you listen to podcasts during your time? I, I do listen to podcasts, and you'd be surprised to know that this is the one that I probably listen the greatest percentage of the time. Ooh, excellent! It's how I get my comic relief. <laughs> It really is, you know. I mean, well, it it's not where I get my information. It's how I get my comic relief. Fair enough. So, fair enough. Fair. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Well, listen, I, I think it would be interesting as we start, and, and we look forward to hearing about your journey. And But I think most interesting, people may not know you were a broadcaster once upon a time. Is this correct? Wow, you're if we going go back, back to now. 1985, that incredible Villanova Wildcat team, did you not call that championship game? Yes, I did. Boy, you're, you're really digging <laughs> way back in the past. I am. One yes, of us I, has to do research for the pod squad. WKVU, the W-K-V-U. student radio station at, at Villanova. And, yes, I, I called the national championship game at Rupp Arena uh, when, uh, when Villanova was the uh, huge underdog to Georgetown and won the national championship back in 1985. And, actually, that trip – uh, through that run in the NCAA tournament and ultimately to the national championship was really the thing that got me motivated to get into this business. Is that right? Yeah, you know, because when I went to Villanova, I, uh, I went to go to the business school. I didn't go there with any intention of working in the sports business. I thought I was going to be working at some Fortune 500 company in, in business, et cetera. Um, and when I went there, I got a job in the athletic department working in the sports information office as a student assistant. And then uh, as time went on, they gave me more teams to work with and by the time I got to my junior year I was working with the basketball team and ultimately went through that entire journey to the national championship and that's what really motivated me to get into the business how about that do you remember where you were David when that in 1985 yeah I was in uh, Gainesville Florida broadcasting for the Florida Gators I remember watching the game you know it was it's one of the great all-time games but uh, I had forgotten that you 
did that game on on uh, on radio. So Dante digs up a nice nugget here. So when when did your broadcasting career when did your broadcasting career get derailed? When did you head in another 1985. direction? Nineteen eighty five. April the, the day first. after the broadcast. The, April the first uh, at the national championship game. Things Actually, worked out pretty well. Were you play by play? I was doing play-by-play. Play. Okay. What a way to go out, though. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, that was That's it. That's a great um, career. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, a lot like you guys do, you know, during your regular broadcasts, um, you know how I called the first half of that game? We had a um, equipment malfunction. Oh, I've heard, I've On the phone? This. So yeah. I did it through the receiver of the telephone. You know, and yeah. David, you can remember those days that. when yeah, sure. you know, they had the couplers, I guess is what they called them, for you to broadcast yes. the game through the telephone yep. line, et cetera. Yeah, but, I carried all my equipment and set it up, you know, for years and did everything. And then when th- something would go wrong, you just grab the phone and grab just the phone and talk on talk the phone. Talk to the phone. And that's how I called the entire first half of that national championship game as Harold Jensen was hitting every shot from from the field and we were shooting 71%. What a great experience. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. Could, could we go back a little further? Because, uh, you wow, know, that's going back. Okay. I mean, I would like to go back because uh, you know, fans want to, I think people want to get to know Alex yes, Martins. Yes. And I've been to your home. I mean, we then early in our career, I don't, Jeff, were you part of the? I was a player back then. David. Back I then you weren't a part of the, <laughs> so Where you grew up in, in Kearney, New Kearney, Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. Uh, I remember your, your childhood home and your parents were so gracious and had, you know, a large group of us there back in 89 or 90, 91, right. maybe several times. Yeah. But well, uh, we what was your what was your childhood like? What was it like growing up in Kearney, New Jersey? Well, first and foremost, you know, I'm a first generation American. I mean, both of my parents were born in Portugal. Um, so, you know, you talk about growing up in Kearney, New Jersey. I mean, for the most part, I grew up with Portuguese as the language being spoken in my, my home. Now, I picked it up because my parents spoke to each other in Portuguese, but um, never really, you know, was was educated, you know, in the Portuguese language per se, formally. Um, so I, you know, I was a first generation American. I was the first uh, uh, person in my family to to go to college, first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, so it, it was a small town, uh, soccer town. Uh, many fans who are uh, longtime sports fans and soccer fans may remember uh, the name Tony Miola, you know, who was a national uh, team member, you know, for the U.S. soccer team, played in World Cups, et cetera. Tony was um, the, the goalkeeper at our high school, at Kearney High School. John Harks is another name that, you know, soccer fans may remember from that era. He also played for the national team. It was a, a striker, you know, on the, on the Kearney High School team. Uh, that team, you know, won the state championship every year. We were very, very uh, big-time soccer town. I went to the small Catholic high school. I didn't go to Kearney High School. I went to the small Catholic high school, uh, of which the all-time leading scorer is Bill, Bill Raftery. Raftery. Very good, Jeff. <laughs> very good. Jeff Look knew at that, that pull by Jeff Turner. <laughs> very good. Wow. History with Bill Raftery. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Bill Raftery. It was a small high school. There were 180 kids in my high school oh, wow. when, when I went there, 27 in my graduating class. Nine of us were males. So oh, wow. really, really small Catholic high school. Um, and, and it was about that size, I think, when Bill Raftery played there. Uh, and when Bill was there, we were very good in, in, in basketball. Uh, I yeah. want to say that Bill won a state championship. All nine, all, all nine males play at the time? <laughs> all <laughs> nine the, males play. Team? Yeah. I think at the time that Bill went, yeah. there may have been more males than us. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the all-time leading scorer at our high school. Um, and so, uh, you know, we were a very close-knit family. Um, you know, all of 
of uh, our extended family lived very close to us. Um, you know, we were definitely a, a you know a very tight knit family growing up. Uh, I had two brothers. Uh, I was the oldest of three, and uh, you know, as I said, first to go off to to college from uh, that small high school in Kearney, New Jersey. Great stuff. Great. Uh, I mean, when you think about the way America was and that town back then, um, I'm not sure if it's anything close to that now back in Kearney. I'm sure the neighborhoods changed today. Yeah. I, I mean, back at that time, it had a he very heavy population of Portuguese immigrants mm -hmm. in it. I don't think that's the case today. Uh, I, I think the, um, the cultural makeup of the city has definitely changed. Um, but I have not been back to Kearney in a long, long time. Um, you know, my family has all moved from there now, and, and it, we, we really don't have any family there. But um, it, was, it was a great time growing up, you know, a small town, northern New Jersey, just outside of Newark, right across the uh, Hudson from Manhattan. I mean, we literally could see the Manhattan skyline uh, from our hometown. So, Alex, how Villanova? Uh, obviously, it's a great school, but why there? And you were originally going to set out on a course for business before you switched as you mentioned, into the, the sports world. Yeah. Uh, well, like, you know, many do today, you know, when they're trying to pick what, what university, what college they want to go to. I went on a tour of a, a lot of different uh, schools around the Northeast. I had decided that I didn't want to stay home. I wanted to go away to college and uh, fell in love with the Villanova campus. I mean, that really what it, what was, it was all about. Um, I, I was focused on schools that I wanted to go into the business school. Uh, but really fell in love with their campus. Anybody that's been to Villanova, you know, in the western suburbs of Philadelphia on the main line, I mean, it's just an absolute gorgeous campus, and uh, it's, it's a great place, um, you know, particularly for those that go away to school. Um, it's a, a great uh, Augustinian Catholic community, um, and uh, it was a great, great experience, great experience at Villanova. How did you get connected with the 76ers? So... Um, a gentleman who worked in the sports information office while I was a student assistant at Villanova left uh, after the national championship year to become the public relations director uh, at the 76ers, a gentleman by the name of Dave Kosky. Um, so, you know, I, I maintained a relationship with Dave, and uh, he had me, you know, like George and, and Joel and a lot of our other staff members here, you know, have people work for them on game nights. Right. And so Dave said, why don't you come work for us on game nights? So as I finished my senior year and after I graduated, um, I wasn't able to find a full time job immediately coming out of college um, in the sports industry. So Dave said, come work for us part time and uh, you can work for us on game nights as well. Whenever you have some extra time, come in. We got plenty of work for you to do. And by the way, at that time, you know, there were no computers. You know, there were, you know, the old. Uh, peck, peck and hunt. Three of the writers. four guys here know about that. <laughs> this right. guy probably doesn't know about that, but three Commodore of the four guys the here Commodore know all about that. Yeah. Then, oh, no, and, that was way before, way before that. Wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't oh, yeah. fax machines either. No. There was the old six-minute mimeograph yeah. machine, wow. you know, where you put a piece of paper on a, a, a drum, and it had this little needle, and it, and it for six minutes... It transmitted that one Look page of paper. How about that? Amazing. Took you six minutes to transmit one page of paper. 
That is incredible. So that, that those were the kind of things that I was doing. You know, watching the mimeograph machine, you go for six minutes, change the page. As you were sending wow. game notes to your future opponent. One page at a time. One page at a time. My okay. goodness. So that's what I did, you know, as a, a part-time assistant. This would know. have been 86, 87. This would have been 86, 87. I, I came out and I, I did get a, a job um, in business as a management trainee uh, for a company by the name of Cintas. A uh, company out of, of Cincinnati uh, that at the time was was pretty much uh, specializing in rental uniforms for business, but now they do a lot more, as, as we all know. But you know, I would I would go do that job during the day, and then I'd go to the 76ers and work part time at night, whether there was game or not, et cetera. So, um, long story short, you know, Dave worked for Pat Williams. Pat Williams was the general manager at the 76ers at the time, and fast forward. You know, to 1989, when Pat, you know, obviously had secured the franchise for Orlando, the expansion franchise, was looking to put a staff together. He calls Dave and says, okay, I need a PR director. Who should I interview? And Dave had me on his list. Um, I was working at Georgetown University at the time. All of my Villanova friends weren't speaking to me That's anymore. Right? <laughs> a traitor. <laughs> um, but I was working in the athletic department, specifically working with the basketball program and Coach Thompson, you know, at, at Georgetown. And Dave had me on his list, you know, of people that he gave to Pat to interview. And I came down and interviewed. And, you know, long story short, you know, Pat ends up hiring me as the first PR director of the Magic back in 1989. How many employees were here at the time when you, was it four or five? I mean, it wasn't <laughs> when, many. When I was hired, it was probably somewhere in the area of 15 to 20. Okay, so we that, ended up having about 30 people on that, on that first staff, including Mr. Steele. Mm -hmm. uh, David was hired right around the same time I was. I Pretty was hired early, in yeah. April of 89. Mm, when were you mine hired? Mine was, uh, I think, January of... January so of 89, yeah. 89. So you were you were a few months just in front of me. Mm -hmm. But at that time there were about 15, 20 and you know we only had about 30 people on the staff, you know, that first season at all, full-time people. And what do we have now? About 325. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Big difference. What was that phone call like from Pat? Like the the first initial like were you just taken aback by the whole thing? Like I was totally taken aback by it because here, you know, I I really only had 1 year of full-time experience in the business. Right. Yes, I had worked as a student assistant. Yes, I had worked part-time for the 76ers, et cetera. But in terms of full-time experience, I had one year at Georgetown. I had just finished my first year. So, you know, I was shocked, you know, to get the, the, uh, the phone call for the interview to begin with. And I was completely blown away by the fact that I was able to, to get the job. Um, I was the youngest PR director in the league at the time at 25 years old. Um, so yeah, I was completely shocked, George. I mean, I, I never would have expected to get the interview, let alone, you know, getting hired at that age to be a PR director in the NBA. Did you have to mimeograph your resume? <laughs> <laughs> I hand delivered that yeah. one, Dante. But Alex, as I listen to the story, think about like your, your love of the game of basketball. And so you were Villanova through a Great, but the Big East, um, the Sixers during the '80. That yeah. I mean, there was a lot of excitement around. Oh, it. I, I, you were I around mean, some I of really, the greatest players uh, in Sixer history through that time, without a doubt. Um, you know, I, I grew up playing soccer. You know, I didn't play basketball. Uh, wasn't much of a huge basketball fan. I was a New York Knicks fan. You know, I watched Knicks games at home, etc. But um, you know, I, I wasn't a huge basketball fan. It was my experience at Villanova that clearly 
gave me the bug and, and gave me this love for the game of basketball. You know, in at Villanova during my spring breaks, I, I didn't come down here to Florida to Fort Lauderdale like everybody else did. You know what I did? I went to the Big East tournament in New York yeah. City, and absolutely loved it. I looked forward to that every year. You know, that first day where you've got Think of you the know names you would have seen in six, those eight games in that very first day, and you know, staying the entire weekend. It, it was it, it was it was great. You know, I loved it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's how my love for the game really, really grew. And to your point, Jeff, you know, working for the 76ers. So one of my first jobs that, that Dave gave me, um, I came to the 76ers in Charles Barkley's rookie year. And basically, you know, Dave had me follow Charles around and make sure that he wasn't getting in trouble. <laughs> make, sure that, make sure that, you know, he was saying all the right things. Just keeping an eye on him. It's a tough time. job. It's a real tough job. Um, sounds but, like he didn't want to do it. That's what it sounds like to me. I, I, it sounds like I didn't do a good job, no. right? Based on what we know about Charles. But to this day, Charles and I maintain a great relationship yeah. because we came to the Sixers at the same time. Uh, but the great, great teams. Of course, they had won the NBA championship in '83, so a lot of those guys were still around. Dr. J, Moses Malone. Um, Bobby Jones, Jones, um, and then of course you know Billy Cunningham, you know coaching the team, etc. So that was a great era in in seventy sixers basketball, and that was when you know all the great rivalries with the Celtics and the Lakers were taking place, etc. And one of my fondest memories of working you know at the Sixers at that time was participating in Dr. J's um, retirement ceremony, Um, and and that was a a great thrill. It was really one of the last things that I did with the 76ers before I went on to, to work at Georgetown. But Pat brought a lot of 76ers front office people with him down here. So does that, that had to be good in the transition, right? You all knew each other. I mean, you knew the, the coaching staff. Without a doubt. I, I, I knew, you know, not intimately and right. not really, really well. But, yes, I knew Matty Gukas. I knew John Gabriel. And so, uh, you know, it, it made it easier, mm-hmm. you know, for all of us to get started together and to have that camaraderie and – uh, it was a great staff, you know, that first staff. It was a real close staff. Of course, it was a small group of us and um, a lot of us working, you know, in the NBA full time for the very first time. And uh, it was a great time in our lives, you know, to get it started and to see the enthusiasm that this community had, you know, for their first professional sports team. Uh, of course, it's been well chronicled, you know, uh, over and over again. But that very first preseason game when we beat the Detroit Pistons, you know, and they were coming off of winning the NBA championship, you went outside, outside of the arena, and you would have thought we won the NBA championship. I mean, people dancing on top of cars and horns <laughs> honking. And, uh, but that was, you know, it was a special time. It was, uh, it was something new. It was something that our fans embraced. And for years – you know, of course, we ran into the luck of winning the lotteries, at, you know, with, with Shaq and Penny, et cetera. But for those, that first decade, we sold out every single game, you know, and it was the thing to do in Orlando. You know, it was a place to see and be seen was to come to Magic Games, and it was a great time to be a part of the startup staff and doing that. You were the media relations director during the Shaq-Penny era. Right. And, uh, you know, Jeff and I were both a part of that as broadcaster and player. But from your perspective, just, you know, recount some of the some of the more interesting uh, times that you went through dealing with the media because there was an intense media crush regarding Shaq and Penny. They were in great demand nationwide. This was a different era. 
uh, you know, cell phones, technology, nothing. It was not anything like today. What was it like, your job in that era with that team? Well, I always characterize it as like traveling with the Beatles (laughs) because everywhere we went, there were crowds of people, whether it was media or whether it was fans. Um, You know, we would pull up into, and and by the way, in those early days, not when Shaq came on board, but in those early days, we were still flying commercial, right? So, I mean, you'd get into cities at all crazy hours, even on the day of the game, et cetera. But uh, once Shaq came along, you know, the DeVosses uh, bought us, you know, a team plane, et cetera. And we would still get into, you know, cities on back-to-backs like you do today, really, at 1, 2, sometimes 3 o'clock in the morning. And there would be hundreds of people outside of the hotel waiting for us to show up, um, you know, to catch a glimpse or to get an autograph from Shaq and Penny, et cetera. I'll never forget the one time we got into Sacramento, and you've probably told this story before, but... You know, Shaq decided that he was going to trick everybody, you know, and, and he put this wig on and he had this long trench coat on, et cetera. And we're like, Shaq, you are never going to get past the crowd. There's no way you're going to trick them. They're going to know it's you. Well, sure enough, the guy comes off the bus, goes right into the lobby, and everybody's still looking up at the bus waiting for Shaq to come off. You know? <laughs> come on, he pulled it off. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. But you, we all know that he was the prankster of all pranksters. You know, he was he was a little kid. Did he ever pull any pranks on you? Uh, it's several. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget. You know, he didn't like. David knew the right. answer to this. This is one of the bo- this is one of the borderline questions we toyed with before. Uh, this is just throwing out a line. Throwing out, see, see if you catch just to see what, see what comes out. So uh, you know, Shaq was the ultimate prankster, and and so and you know, there were days where he didn't want to deal with the media crush. You know, and of course, I was the guy at that time that had to go to him after practice and say, okay, Shaq, here we go. We got NBC, we've got this, we've got that. And you, then you got to go talk to the scrum, et cetera. Well, one day he decided he wasn't going to take that from me. And he decided to wrap me in medical tape <laughs> at center court so that I couldn't get to the media and he could run away from the media. <laughs> Uh, and that's just one of the many, many. I remember pranks that one. That, I was hoping you would, <laughs> you would tell that one. One of the many. You got pranks. one, David. You got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're still employed. That's oh, good, good. And I imagine you can't get away from him when he's trying to no. string you up no. like that. That's I mean, a pretty strong. Well, you know, a man, a man of his size. And but you were, you were. Yeah, there were many more that were victims of Shaq. Oh, I, I think we all were. I mean, yes. you were a victim. You had to have a, a prank that he pulled on oh, you yeah, at some yeah. point. Oh, yeah, yeah, he got all – I felt – you know who I felt the worst for was poor the late Brooks Thompson. Yes. You know, he, he – Gerd he Hammock. Gerd Hammock was <laughs> – had a tough rookie year, too. Rookies <laughs> did the not fare well. The rookies really the brunt well. of it all, Yes, didn't they? they did. Yeah. yeah. Well, who was he? The guy, well, before you go, to, can yeah, I yeah, just – I just want to just – you know, it was many years ago, but – I apologize for not stepping in and helping you, Alex. <laughs> I think actually he was in the you corner know, going, I oh, Shaq, go! I had oh, forgotten Shaq. that, Jeff, that you didn't step in. So you <laughs> are I just fired. want to make sure I just want to get on the record. I just want to get on the record now since we're talking about jobs and things. Right. Uh, was JT hard on you media request-wise? Was he, was he, was he tough to get? I can't remember any do- media requests that JT ever got. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. JT. Wow, that was good. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Do you guys remember? Do you remember um, the Barry Cooper, um, who was the, the, the Sentinel writer, writer for the Orlando Sentinel? They, would, they came out with the grades. Remember, they would they yes. would come out and grade yeah. people and everything. Yeah. I was the one that put together the poster board in the locker room with all the media 
members' names on it with spaces for everybody to grade the media oh, members. Nice. And I left that in the locker room. Yeah, it was quite good. good. It was yeah. very oh, nice. I really enjoyed it. it was Did you like that, Alex, as the media relations <laughs> guy? Or was no, that? no. And, and, as a matter of fact, no one ever told me who put that <laughs> It was So me. that's strike two, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to be on the record. Yeah, yeah, right. Let me just talk. go on the record as saying, you know, now as a member of the media, I apologize for that too. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cathartic yes. session for you. Yes. You want to cut bait now, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, I'm done. Anything else you want to confess? You don't hear from me again. I'm done. But you've got Shaq. You've got you. Then you are able to draft Penny. You have your coach in Brian Hill. You eventually add Horace Grant. I mean, there was a feeling. You end up going to the finals. But there had to have been a feeling. We're going to be doing this for quite some time. Oh, without a doubt. Um, You know, we, we, in that year, you know, that we went to the finals, uh, I mean, from my perspective, and I think a lot of people around here every time we every night we came to the gym we expected to win Mm -hmm. you know we were that good we were that dominant and uh anytime that we did lose it was a surprise you know and and we did think that that was going to last for a long long time Mm -hmm. Um, but i'll never forget you know after game one of that finals um we were up 27 against houston in that game right in the first half Mm -hmm. and of course we all know the story that houston came all the way back and I walked into the locker room after the game. I looked around the locker room and, you know, I turned to the person next to me and I said, uh, we're done. You know, you could see it on their faces because we were so young. They hadn't been through that experience before, but they looked so dejected that uh, you knew that we were in trouble. Did you feel that way, Jeff? You were in that locker room. I don't know that I, I, I don't know that as a player I felt that way. Um, but I do agree that we were – it was pretty devastating, and the fact that we were so young and had not been through anything like that, I thought that was a, that was a big part of what ended up happening. So. And, of course, you know, we end up getting swept, and that bus ride coming out of uh, the old was Houston the worst. arena was yeah. the worst. Fans I mean, were they rocking were, the They, they the were bus. rocking the bus. Mm-hmm. We thought they were going to tip the bus over, yeah. right, Jeff? Mm-hmm. You know what stinks from my perspective on that was I was an intern during that year under Alex – and the whole staff was going to go out to Houston for a game during the finals. They had already told the whole staff, the ones that didn't travel, and I was an intern. I didn't go anywhere other than the office. <laughs> um, and they said, okay, we're going to send all the staff out for a game in Houston, and we're all pumped. This is before the series starts. You guys are all going to go to game five. <laughs> and I was like, that, this is great. We're going to go to Houston. This is unbelievable. And then it never, <laughs> it never <laughs> happened. Never got my trip oh, to the finals. Yeah. That was a bummer. But, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Dante, you, you, know, you, you get a team like that and you think it's going to last forever, um, you know, and we all know what history happened, you know, after that in terms of, of Shaq's departure and Penny's injury and, you know, how it all really crumbled apart. We were in a different period of time, too, that really allowed all that to happen. It was really the, the one period of time in the collective bargaining agreement era that we didn't have restricted free, free agency, just that one off season. And that was the precipice for Shaq being able to, to leave. Because in today's era, and almost every other era you know, in, in collective bargaining, we've had this notion of restricted free agency where a team can match you know, a, right. any offer from another team that a player gets as a restricted free agent and keep them. Well, unfortunately, we hit that one window in that one year when Shaq became a free agent. We didn't have that in the system. Um, in today's system, he would have, we, we would have, the magic would have 
been able to keep him for at least three more years. Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you would you would have it in, in this system today, you know, a player that you draft, you can keep for seven years, provided right. that you match any offer that another team gives them. And that could have changed the course of history sure. if restricted free agency was in place. You know, could have won a championship. Could have won that a next championship year. or two during that period of time, and you know Shaq's attitude about leaving, you know, could be completely different, and you know history could be different as well. So you know it wasn't just about Shaq's decision, but I think it was also the system that allowed him to make that decision right. that really could have changed the course of history. Now, '98, you left the Magic. Give us uh, just you know what happened, uh, why you left, where you went. Um, how it came to be that you returned to Orlando, what the circumstances were there. You know, I I wanted to take another step in my career. And uh, at the time, there wasn't really that opportunity here with the Magic. I mean, there were a lot of senior executives that weren't going anywhere and, um, you know, were were strongly in place, were doing a great job, et cetera. So uh, it just happened that at that time, I was recruited by, you know, one of these executive recruiting firms uh, for uh, a senior executive position with the new Cleveland Browns when they were getting restarted as an expansion franchise after the original team moved to Baltimore. And it just so happened that one of the people that I really revered in the business and had a lot of respect for and always said to myself, boy, you know, would love to work for, for, for this gentleman was Carmen Policy, who was the longtime CEO of the San Francisco 49ers, you know, was the CEO when they won their five Super Bowl championships, et cetera. Well, Carmen, um, you know, had left the 49ers by that time and was now part owner and CEO of the new Cleveland Browns. Um, so, you know, through this uh, executive recruiting firm, got the chance to meet Carmen, uh, interviewed with him. We hit it off really, really well. Um, he gave me an opportunity that I couldn't refuse. Uh, you know, both financially and also from a responsibility standpoint. And so in late 98, I left, you know, to, to join the Cleveland Browns and was part of the, those first couple of seasons when they got restarted uh, with Chris Palmer as our he- head coach and, uh, you know, th- that whole crew. And uh, Tim Couch, you know, was our very first draft pick, if you remember that name, mm-hmm. right? And um, so anyway, we, we, we gained great experience there, experience that I've always said that the things that I learned from Carmen and being in a different league, you know, quite frankly, are things that, you know, allowed me to come back here and try different things with the Orlando Magic that hopefully has helped us to be a little bit better, you know, along the way by looking at things in a different way. But I was there for a couple of years. Um, When I decided to leave the Browns again with an eye on, you know, trying to advance my career, decided to take a year and a half off, um, did some consulting work for for the Magic as well, uh, but went and got my MBA. Uh, went to UCF, got my MBA, and immediately after I finished my MBA, was um, hired as the chief marketing officer for the Hornets in New Orleans when they moved from Charlotte. So I was in New Orleans for a couple of years and uh, worked as the CMO. Met my wife, Juliet, there. We got married in New Orleans. Um, and after we got married and decided to start a family, we wanted to move back here to, to Orlando. Or, you know, I convinced her to move back. (laughs) (laughs) She she had never lived here before. Um, But uh, the first job that I had back here was working for the Tavistock Group. I was the the first tournament director for the Tavistock Cup, you know, that uh, sort of silly season golf 
PGA golf event between the pros at Lake Nona against the pros at Isleworth. So I was the tournament director for that for uh, first couple of years. And then, you know, the Magic were going through some significant transition, both on the business and basketball side of the house at that time. And uh, I got a call from the ownership and asked me if I'd come back um, and oversee the majority of uh, the business side of the house. And, and that was 15 years ago now. How about that? Well, mention that ownership group, Alex, because you you've have consistently said it's the best ownership group in all of sports, and you've been able to visit and experience other ownership groups and other sports. Your relationship with Rich DeVos and how, how close you are in the whole DeVos family. Well, in terms of Mr. DeVos himself, I would have to say that, you know, he will have been, you know, one of the greatest mentors in my life. I mean, he certainly uh, taught me how to be a good leader and taught me how to treat people the right way and treat our employees the right way and, um, you know, how to lead people. Uh, you know, he had a, a great, great influence on my life and, you know, how I try to conduct our business here at the Orlando Magic today. Uh, and his family, you know, again, as I've said, you know, as, as you said, you know, they are the, one of the best ownerships in professional sports. I sit around the, you know, the boardroom table with every owner in the NBA four times a year. And, you know, I've gotten some great insight into every one of them, you know, sitting around that board table. And in terms of uh, the way they care about their community, the way they treat their employees, the way that they treat their players and coaches, um, and, you know, the, the, the assets that they give all of us, you know, to be able to operate our business uh, and operate it well. Um, I, I really believe there's no ownership in our league and maybe in all professional sports that really um, is as great, you know, as the DeVos family is. And, you know, of course, Mr. and Mrs. DeVos uh, are gone now, but, you know, the, the second generation and now the third generation continue to carry on their legacy and uh, operate this team the same way and giving us all the assets that we need to be successful and treating our employees really, really well. Um, giving back, you know, to this great Central Florida community um, and putting a great product on the floor for our, our fans to enjoy. So uh, they, they are a great ownership group. Um, I can't think of anybody else that I would want to work for. Um, I, I've said internally several times when I'm done with my role here, I'm, I'm not going to go work for another team, you know, because there's not going to be a better situation than, than we've got here at the Orlando Magic. I think we would all echo those sentiments, yeah. right? I mean, we, we look around and we travel to all these uh, other teams and other places, and uh, I can't think of a place that would be better than here and under under the DeVos family, for sure. Did you think back on your career and some uh, all the accomplishments? I mean, where do you rank this building? You know, having having this, uh, and it had to have been hard. As as outdated as the first building was, it had to have been hard to see that go because you guys had a ton of memories in there, I would think, but. But yeah, it wasn't company. that old, but it was not. Uh, it, was <laughs> it was not ready. designed with. Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, with a lot it, of vision. Unfortunately, it was. Um, it, it was an end of an era building that was built when the new era had just that begun. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so the Palace of Auburn Hills was actually opened, I believe, the year, the year before. before yeah. Right. And I mean that was the new mecca of arena facilities. Right. It had all the new suites and all the amenities and. Uh, great fan seatings, great sight lines, great uh, video boards and electronics, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I think because of the fact that they were building a building quickly um, and with limited resources in order to try and attract an NBA franchise, um, you know, the, the old, uh, what was the Amway Arena, 
um, was not you know built in the new era of buildings and so really what it was was a public assembly facility you know it had one concourse it had you know four men's restrooms four <laughs> women's restrooms you know probably not even a dozen concession stands and the experience was just not that great you know uh, you were on a, you were in a line no matter what you were trying to do whether you wanted to buy popcorn or go to the restroom and you know if it was at a concert or if it was at a game by the time you got back to your seat you missed part of the action you know um, so that that's why it didn't last very long you know quite frankly even though it lasted 20 years right um, and it was a great place for a home court advantage I mean think about the 1985 finals and how or actually the Eastern Conference Eastern finals Conference is the finals. one that really you know I can remember the most in terms of the decibel level 95 uh, 95 yeah yeah I thought I said 90 oh, yeah. sorry you saw Villanova on the brain yeah 85 I said 85, 85. right but 95 yes um and you know that finals against the Indiana Eastern Conference finals against the Indiana Pacers you couldn't hear yourself think it was mm -hmm. so loud in there so from a home court advantage it was spectacular um but you know in terms of this building Dante you know other than winning an NBA championship mm -hmm. uh I think this is the greatest accomplishment that our staff could ever sure uh experience um and you know, I feel that way. I mean, this is, this is, this was is a career-defining accomplishment for everyone on our staff that participated in building this building. And to this day, ten years later, I still think it's one of the class buildings of our. I league. was just about to say the same thing. I think ten years later, and everything still holds up well, like it's brand new. You walk around the concourse, everything's got that shine and luster on it. Yeah, I, I, I saw someone today, you know, at uh, getting a cup of coffee and commented that you know the Amway Center is 10 years old they couldn't believe it no yeah. it's not 10 you can't be 10 years old I was in there last week and it, it's brand new right but no I mean it does it's held up it's held up really, incredibly, really well. incredibly well and you know that's a testament to our staff that's a testament to the city's staff and mm -hmm. you know all of our contractors that are responsible for keeping you know for the upkeep of the building uh, but you know it, it'll be interesting I'm going to see the new one you know as we go on this west coast trip that's right yes. the chase center oh, yeah. so we'll have to see how the chase center holds up <laughs> I well, think that, ours that, is better yeah. ours is better <laughs> that brings up uh, what I, I want you to address you, you know your focus is the business operations of the magic and Oh, so what's 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 down the road? What what is uh, what's what's the next vision that this franchise will undertake from a business standpoint? Well, you know, it's it's continuous improvement. It's you know innovating. Um, you know, we are known you know in our league you know for for being innovators. You know, particularly throughout the entire organization, but on the business side, we were one of the first uh, teams in the league to really utilize business analytics to drive new revenue streams um, and you know uh, variable pricing and dynamic pricing of tickets etc um, and uh, you know we were one of the first in the league to really utilize technology you know to enhance the fan experience to the point now where you know you can do anything with our app you know you get in the building and on our app you can order food on our app you can order retail on our app you can exchange your tickets on our app you can upgrade what have you and we were really the league leaders in that regard. So we're always looking, you know, to try and improve things. And, you know, we're, we have an innovation process that we go through, you know, to, to continuously improve our business. And uh, we're always looking for new ways to, to drive revenue, but also to be at the forefront, you know, of, of change in, in our business. Of course, you know, we're uh, in this calendar year, you know, we hopefully in the spring we'll be um, – breaking ground on a, a new 
uh, mixed-use entertainment complex right across the street from the Amway Center to include a hotel and a uh, office building and a music venue and some restaurants, et cetera. So that'll be, you know, a, a new phase, you know, of our overall business. And, you know, we've got some other things that we're working on that, you know, we, we can't dis discuss yet. But we're always looking to do something new. But the, the bottom line is, is that from a business standpoint, the number one goal is to support our basketball operation so that we can get to our ultimate goal of winning an NBA championship. Because as as successful as this organization has been over 30 years and, you know, of all the innovative things that we've done as an organization and the reputation that we've developed in our league is, you know, one of the best, you know, operated organizations in the NBA, the one thing we haven't done is won an NBA championship, and that's the one thing that we still want to accomplish, and that's still the number one goal of the business side is to help support everything that we need to do to be able to, you know, get that success on the basketball floor and win a championship. Well said, and we see that put to use every day. I think the last thing I'd ask you, Alex, uh, with the unfortunate passing of David Stern recently, you've learned from some of the best. I mean, you think about the people you've had the privilege of be having, uh, yeah. you know, FaceTime with, and I don't think people will realize the kind of relationship you had with the late great commissioner and kind of well, how much of a mentor he was to you. He was. He was a great friend and a mentor to me. Uh, I have no idea why he decided to take me under his wing, but he did, and, um, you know, he – I would get regular phone calls from him, um, you know, sometimes berating me about the lack of season ticket sales, <laughs> but other times, you know, uh, you know, giving me sage advice, you know, about how to become a better executive and how to look at things and, you know, and, and uh, you know, everybody knows that David was a tough man, uh, but he also had a big heart, you know, and I think that um, myself and a lot of other people included, he took him under his wing you know to help develop them to to make them better executives but uh you know a couple of quick stories of course um david was never one to you know come out with a direct compliment to anybody you know uh if if anything he was he was going to uh really chop you down as opposed to giving you a compliment but i remember when we were opening the amway center it was our our first night and he was here for opening night and you know, he got here about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was taking him on a, a, a tour of the whole building, you know, f floor by floor, and all of the ushers and the ticket takers were in place. And you know how we've really focused from the outset of this building on customer service and making sure this right. has been like a, you know, a, a, a mecca for customer service. So as the commissioner, you know, and I were walking, you know, the hallways and the concourses, everybody would say, you know, welcome to the Amway Center. Have a good time tonight. You know, hope you enjoy the game, <laughs> et cetera. So we got about halfway through the building. He grabs my arm. He stops me and he says, I'm from New York. I don't like people to be nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he used an expletive or two. Yeah, but sure. that was his way of giving a compliment. Nice. Right? Okay. So, and, and that's the way David was. Um, and then my other story is uh, when I was leaving Cleveland, one of my last uh, duties was to take a group of sponsors to the Pro Bowl in Honolulu when it was in Hawaii at the time. And so we were on an off day and I was enjoying, you know, the beach by myself and my early cell phone rings. I think at that, at that time it was probably a brick phone, right, David? It was one of those big bricks. And uh, it did have caller ID and I noticed that it was the commissioner's office and it was Linda, you know, his longtime uh, forever assistant. Linda was his, David's assistant for over 40 years. But Linda gets on the phone. She says, Alex, stand by for the commissioner. 
So it's like, okay. I want somebody to do that for me. <laughs> really bad. So as, as, David, as David will always do, he doesn't say hello. He doesn't ask you how your day is going. He picks up the phone and he says, and little did I know, he knew that I was leaving the Browns. I hadn't had recent conversation with him. He gets on the phone and says, okay, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? <laughs> you know, again, That's his great. way of saying, you know, do you need my help? Right. And, That's you know, he... He was a tough man, uh, obviously brilliant, you know, uh, the greatest commissioner in sports history, in my opinion, and also one of the greatest business people in the world. Um, and all of us in this league and in this organization have him to thank, you know, for what he did, you know, for this league and how he grew this league. Don't forget, when he became commissioner, the NBA finals were being broadcast tape delay. That's incredible. Right? I mean, they weren't even being viewed live. I mean, that's how, you know, there was really little interest in the NBA at the time. Teams were going bankrupt. Of course, we had drug issues, et cetera. And look at where we are today. You know, arguably the, the, the second most popular sport in the world behind soccer. And our reach is global. You know, we're seen in 211 countries around the world. Um, it, it's all because of, you know, his vision and his hard work and, you know, his demanding of all of us that, you know, we, we, we work hard and, and put this league in, in a good spot, and we're going to miss him dearly. We certainly will. Well, we appreciate the time as always, Alex, and we know you have great passion for this organization and this city in general. So this has been a lot of fun. And uh, Thank you, guys. forward to one of those parades. I guys. think we all survived. Yeah, the, good new, the good news is nobody got fired. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's it's Jeff, on record Jeff, now. Jeff had two strikes. I had two, two strikes, but he didn't get the third one. He fouled off the third one. He fouldled off the third one. He stayed alive. All right. Thanks, Alex.